0: Thanks for tuning in to this podcast on kpov.org. The following conversation with Ranger Randy and Dr. Danielle McKay, geologist and instructor at the University of Oregon, aired on the Sasquatch Hideaway as a series on KPOV 88.9 FM, Bend, Oregon, in 2018. In this segment, we'll hear about local land formations and answer questions like, what is a volcano? And why is Oregon rotating in a clockwise direction and squishing Washington? What causes volcanoes?
1: Well, let's just give a kind of a brief definition of what is a volcano. So we think of a volcano as a tall, pointy mountain that sometimes spews out ash or lava. Uh, And that is one definition that fits volcano. But really, at the basic level, a volcano is any opening in the Earth that can emit lava, ash, but also just gases. So it doesn't have to be erupting to be a volcano. So if we think of a volcano as any opening in the earth, that can, can erupt lava, it can erupt ash, it can erupt gas, then we need to think about, okay, what is causing the lava to form? What is causing the ash to form? What is causing the gas to form? And that gives us an explanation as to why volcanoes exist. So in order to generate magma, if it's deep underground, we call it magma. If it comes up to the surface, we call it lava, but it's the same stuff. In order to generate magma, part of the mantle, the layer underneath the crust, has to melt. And again, we kind of tend to think of all of the mantle being molten. If you look at a diagram showing the interior of the earth, the mantle is always shown in reds or oranges, which really makes you think that it's molten. And it's not molten, it's a solid material. It's at very high temperatures, but it's also at very high pressures. And those pressures keep that material from melting, even though the temperature is so high. So in order to generate magma, part of the mantle has to melt. And there's only three ways that the mantle can melt. One is to decrease the pressure. That pressure keeps the material from melting, but if we can somehow decrease the pressure, it will melt. And we can decrease decrease the pressure by thinning out the crust of the earth above that area of the mantle. If you have thick crust, that's a lot of pressure, no melting. If you have thin crust, less pressure, some melting occurs. A second way that we can generate magma is we can add water to the mantle. And that's not just as simple as opening up a crack in the earth and... A river pours water in there. That, that kind of thing doesn't happen. These are miles and miles below the surface of the earth. The only way that we can really get water into the mantle is at a subduction zone where one plate is subducting beneath another plate. There is some hydrogen and then some oxygen incorporated in the minerals of that rock that's subducting down. There's no liquid water, but there is hydrogen and oxygen. When that rock gets deep enough, reactions actually occur, and those minerals change from one mineral to a new type of mineral, and the hydrogen and oxygen is released into the mantle. So, we've now changed the chemical composition of the mantle. It was just mantle, now it's mantle plus hydrogen and oxygen, and it melts. So an analogy for this is on a winter's day, if you have ice on sidewalks and you sprinkle salt on the ice, you haven't changed the temperature outside, you haven't changed the pressure of the sidewalk, but you have changed the chemical composition of the ice. It's now water plus salt, and that melts. So just by getting some hydrogen and oxygen into the mantle, we can melt the mantle. That only occurs at a subduction zone. And then the third way is a hot spot, what I mentioned earlier. If we can increase the temperature of the mantle, then it will melt. So if we bring hot material up from very deep within the Earth, we've, we've brought that material up fairly quickly on a geologic scale, and we've increased the temperature. So those are the three ways to melt the mantle. Decrease the pressure, increase the temperature, or add water. Any of those processes will generate magma. That magma will rise up through the crust of the Earth, and may or may not feed volcanoes. So here in the Cascades, we're sitting on a subduction zone. So the way that magma is generated here in Central Oregon is that the Juan de Fuca plate is subducting, hydrogen and oxygen are coming off that plate, that's changing the composition of the mantle, the mantle's melting, uh, that magma's rising up and feeding volcanoes. So that's why volcanoes form in Central Oregon.
0: Can we expect there to be volcanic activity from that?
1: Yeah, so that process, for as long as that process occurs, the the Cascades as an entire mountain range are considered active. And individual volcanoes within that mountain range may or may not be considered active. There's sort of these terms out there, active volcanoes, extinct volcanoes, dormant volcanoes. To volcanologists, to someone who studies volcanoes, a dormant volcano doesn't really mean anything. A volcano is either active or it's extinct. And to be active, it can be erupting or it can be capable of erupting. So active to a volcanologist really incorporates what most of the rest of the world calls active and extinct. A sleeping volcano to a volcanologist is really an active volcano. It's capable of erupting. An extinct volcano is a volcano that is completely cut off from any magma source. If subduction stops, there's no more hydrogen and oxygen getting into the mantle below the Cascades. Then the Cascades, as an entire mountain range, will go extinct. That hasn't happened right now. We're still generating magma deep below the Cascades, so the Cascades are active. Some volcanoes in the Cascades are probably extinct, but others are definitely capable of erupting again. And the signs that we look for to see if a volcano might erupt again is how recently was its last eruption. And we have some volcanoes here in Central Oregon that have erupted very recently. Newberry Volcano, south of Bend, uh, erupted 1,300 years ago. And that's just, you know, the blink of an eye to, to a volcano. So it's very capable of erupting again. In addition to looking at the last eruption, how long ago the last eruption was, we also look at things like Are there gases that are still coming out of that volcano? So remember, one of the definitions of a volcano was that it erupts lava and ash, but also just gas. And there are gases coming out of Newberry Volcano. There's sulfur dioxide gas, which is a volcanic gas. There's carbon dioxide gas. So that's a very clear indication that somewhere beneath the volcano there is still magma, and that gas is part of the magma, and it's coming up through cracks in the earth and and seeping out of the volcano, which means the volcano is still active. We also look for tiny little earthquakes. As magma moves beneath volcanoes, it generates very small earthquakes, much too small to feel, but enough to tell us that that volcano is still active. There is a perception out there that earthquakes trigger volcanic activity, but usually that's not the case. It's actually volcanic activity that generates these tiny little earthquakes. Magma moving through cracks in the rock breaks the rock, and broken rock is an earthquake. Um, So that's another indication that we look for. And here in central Oregon, there are little earthquakes that occur all the time around Newberry Volcano, around South Sister. So those are indications that those volcanoes are still very active. So yes, we could expect to see volcanic activity in the future.
0: So is the fact that we have the Cascade Range, that thick layer of magma or lava, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, does that create more pressure below to, to maybe keep that from happening? Or?
1: Yeah, so it doesn't really, the, the magma itself doesn't really create pressure, and the volcanoes don't erupt because of pressure. It's actually the opposite. Right. It takes a decrease in pressure to trigger a volcanic eruption. Um, so a good analogy for this is a soda bottle. If you, if you have a soda bottle and you shake up that can of soda or you have a can of soda, you shake up the can inside the bottle, there is soda and then there's dissolved gas. You can shake the the can all you want, but if you don't open it, it's, it's not going to just spontaneously erupt. The, The whole can is under pressure and it's not until you open the lid that that pressure is released so you can keep shaking that can all day long and you will never generate an eruption out out of the the can of soda because the pressure is keeping everything inside the can however the moment you open it uh, you have lowered the pressure and you know if you've shaken that can of soda you get this fairly impressive eruption of soda coming out of the can and that was a decrease in pressure that triggered that eruption. As long as the lid was was on the can and everything was under pressure the dissolved gas, carbon dioxide gas, couldn't form little bubbles and it couldn't come out of solution, and it couldn't rise up through the soda and come shooting out of the can because the whole thing was under pressure. So it's kind of the same thing with our volcanoes. There is pressure on those magma chambers, but the pressure is actually a good thing. Pressure does not lead to a volcanic eruption. Instead, it's the decrease in pressure that would lead to a volcanic eruption because just like the soda, there's dissolved carbon dioxide gas, sulfur dioxide gas, and water, H2O, as a gas dissolved in the magma. And as long as the pressure is high, none of those gases can form little bubbles and come up through the volcano. But if the pressure lowers, those gases can form bubbles. They come rising up out of the volcano, and as they rise up, the bubbles get bigger and bigger and bigger. And those bubbles actually drag the magma out of the volcano with the bubbles, just like in the can of soda. You have this eruption of foamy soda, that's bubbles of gas that drag soda out of the can with it. Uh, Same thing for volcanoes. It's a decrease in pressure that triggers eruptions. So people who study volcanoes and, and whether or not a volcano is showing signs of an eruption are really concerned about decrease in pressure as a warning sign for an eruption.
0: So a good example of that might be what happened at Mount St. Helens when the landslide yes. happened and then the eruption?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent example of that. So Mount St. Helens was, um, it was, it was ready to erupt. I mean, I think that eruption would have occurred regardless. But it triggered, it, Mount St. Helens started to kind of dome up. Um, because of the magma chamber that was underneath it, and that triggered a landslide. And once that landslide came off, and a lot of material came off the side of the mountain, that was a decrease in pressure on that magma chamber, a very sudden decrease in pressure. And that then caused these big plumes of ash and gas to come erupting out of the volcano. So yeah, that's an excellent example of a decrease in pressure on the magma chamber triggering a, a very violent eruption.
0: So, back to the subduction zone. Mm -hmm. Since that doesn't stop, is that subduction zone, does it stay stationary? Does it move east or west? Um, Is there a way to predict where the next eruption might occur from that?
1: Yeah, so everything is moving. (laughs) Everything on the planet is moving. All of the plates on the planet are constantly in motion. So to think about movement of the subduction zone, you have to think of multiple directions of movement. There's the North American plate, which we're sitting on. There's the Juan de Fuca plate that's subducting underneath the North American plate. The North American plate is moving southwest. The Juan de Fuca plate is moving northeast and they're on a collision course. So there's that subduction. But that doesn't tell us where the next volcano will erupt. Uh, As that subducting plate gets deep down beneath the North American plate, magma is generated, but it's generated everywhere along that subduction zone. So magma can rise up and it can feed volcanoes, but there isn't anything about the movement of subduction that tells us where those volcanoes might erupt. However, if you look at the geologic history or the volcanic history of the Cascades, the most active section of the Cascades where there have been more eruptions than any other part of the Cascades is in central Oregon. <laughs> so <Lucky that's>, that. <laughs> yeah, that is an indication that since we are in the most active section of the Cascades, there are more volcanoes, individual volcanoes here than anywhere else in, in the Cascades. And remember that a volcano is any opening in the earth where ash or lava or gas can erupt. It isn't just the tall, snow-covered mountains like Mount St. Helens and Mount Hood and the Three Sisters. If you think about the Cascades as just those volcanic peaks, those occur along the entire mountain range. But if you think of the Cascades as any volcanic vent where ash or gas or lava can be erupted, there are more volcanic vents here in central Oregon than anywhere else. So although... The subduction, the the movement of subduction itself can't directly tell us when the next volcano or where the next volcano will be. Just looking at the history of eruptions in the Cascades, most of them have been in Central Oregon. And then if we look at individual volcanoes, the volcano that has erupted individually most often is Mount St. Helens. Um, And so that's another individual volcano that is very likely to erupt again. There's Mount Hood and Mount Adams. And Mount St. Helens sits a a little bit to the west, or you can kind of think of it as Mount Adams sits a little bit to the east of the other Cascades. Um, There is a little bit of a bend in in the chain of Cascades right there at at Mount St. Helens, or, or a little bit south of it, and that actually reflects the geometry of the subduction zone itself. There's a little bit of a bend in the subduction zone as well. Mount Adams sits a little bit east of the rest of the Cascades. Newberry Volcano here in Central Oregon also sits just a little bit east of the rest of the Cascades. And then in the southern section of the Cascades, Medicine Lake Volcano sits just a little bit east of the Cascades. But all of those volcanoes uh, are pretty clearly cascade volcanoes. The lavas that they erupt, you know, I I mentioned that lavas that are generated by a hotspot have kind of a chemical signature of a hotspot. Lavas that are generated by a subduction zone have a chemical signature of a subduction zone. And the lavas that erupted at, at Mount Adams at Newberry Volcano and at Medicine Lake Volcano have that subduction zone signature. Uh, So they are part of the Cascades, even though they sit just a little bit east of the rest of the chain.
0: Since Newberry is on basically the western end of that high lava plain, but you're saying it's not part of the high lava plain?
1: Yeah, so the high lava plains is this um, chain of, of, it's not really a chain of volcanic peaks, it's more a chain of vents in the earth that have erupted lava flows or ash or gas. But the high lava plains have this kind of progressive chain of volcanoes or volcanic vents where the older ones are in southeastern Oregon and as you get farther and farther towards the northwest, they get progressively younger and younger. And if you follow that trend of progressive progressively younger volcanoes towards the northwest, Newberry kind of fits in that trend and it kind of looks like the youngest of the High Lava Plains volcanoes. But that is a little bit of a product of how humans um, divide (laughs) geographic regions. If you look just a little bit to the northwest of Newberry, there's South Sister and Why not include South Sister as part of that progressively younger chain of volcanoes? Well, the reason we don't include South Sister is because it's part of the Cascades. But Newberry also is part of the Cascades. So really what you're getting into is a region where two geologic provinces overlap, the high lava plains and the Cascade volcanoes. And right here in central Oregon is the junction of the high lava plains and the Cascade volcanoes. So at volcanoes, at that junction, you're going to see a little bit of both things happening. The high lava plains is an area where there's a lot of faults. And those faults are places where the crust of the earth is getting thinned or stretched or pulled apart. And we talked about earlier that one way to generate magma is to thin out the crust of the earth because then you're decreasing the pressure on the mantle below it. So the High Lava Plains is an area where magma is generated because we're thinning or stretching out the crust of the earth. The Cascades is a place where magma is generated because of subduction and the introduction of hydrogen and oxygen into the mantle. So if you're at the junction of the High Lava Plains and the Cascades, and let's say you look at Newberry Volcano, which is sitting right at that junction, there is some stretching of the earth and some faulting. That's allowing very nice pathways for the magma to come up. But the generation of the magma itself is really more because of subduction and the addition of hydrogen and oxygen into the mantle. So Newberry and much of Central Oregon, including South Sister and that region of the of the Cascades, the High Cascades, it's sitting right at this junction of two different geologic processes. So there's going to be multiple processes that are responsible for forming volcanoes there. It isn't just one or just the other.
0: Since it's also on the border of the basin and range. Mm-hmm. I assume that's what's causing the stretching and thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the high Level plains is really the northernmost extension, the northwesternmost extension of the basin and range. And the basin and range is an area where really western North America is getting pulled apart. So if you think about Nevada, Nevada is sort of ground zero for basin and range. And Nevada uh, has been stretched. Uh, it, it used to course there were no state lines millions of years ago, but if there were, if you can kind of use your imagination and take the state lines of Nevada and just squeeze it into this narrow little squished condensed version of the state of Nevada, it actually has been stretched and pulled apart by basin and range. In the basin and range area, this is all faulting activity. The faults for the most part run north-south, and in the high-level plains those faults actually run northwest-southeast. And that's probably because we're at the northwesternmost extension of Basin and Range, and those faults are kind of interacting with a, a portion of North America that really isn't being pulled apart and stretched, which kind of changes the geometry of, of those faults. But again, this is a area of very active research, and a whole other portion of geology that's really dedicated to studying earthquakes and seismic activity and how continents move and behave to earthquakes or how earthquakes affect the movements of continents. People are really sort of studying what what is the high lava plains? What is causing that faulting and how does that fit with basin and range?
0: So I've also heard that uh, Oregon is rotating.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah and this gets that that feeds right into this whole sort of model of of how North America is moving. Um, A little earlier in our conversation we talked about how North America, as a as a unit, is moving southwest. But that's just the general motion of the entire North American plate. Other portions of the plate can move in different directions as sort of individual blocks within a much larger plate. So geology, oftentimes you have to think of multiple directions of movement. So an analogy for this might be if you're on a plane and you're heading east, you're flying to New York, but you get up from your seat and you walk to the back of the airplane. So you're technically walking west on a plane that is flying very quickly to the east. So, but that's really two directions of movement. You are moving moving east at a much more rapid rate, but you're also moving west at a much slower rate. So North America, you can kind of think of, you know, in a rough analogy, the entire North American plate is moving Southwest, but pieces of that plate are moving in other directions. And Oregon is actually rotating clockwise. There is a kind of a big picture tectonic reason for this. The very quick version is that the, the San Andreas Fault in California is the meeting of the North American plate and the Pacific plate and that is a transform fault boundary. Those plates are rubbing against each other, moving in two different directions, but no no collision. There's no subduction happening there. Um, So so the Pacific plate is kind of dragging part of California to to the north in this transform plate boundary. And part of that means that the Sierra Nevada mountain range which is a sort of cohesive block of rock is is also being dragged to the north and that sierra nevada sort of block is impinging on oregon and causing oregon then to kind of rotate or or spin off in the, in a clockwise direction and kind of be squished into washington and washington is getting shortened or rumpled up or compressed because um, if you think of what's north of Washington, it's British Columbia, and British Columbia is a solid part of the North American plate. The only direction it's moving is southwest along with the rest of the plate. So in re- relative to all this motion that's going on on the west coast, we can think of British Columbia as being stationary, even though it's not, it's moving southwest, but it's relative to all this other motion, it's not going anywhere. The Sierra Nevada block is pushing on Oregon. Oregon's rotating and squeezing into Washington, and Washington's being compressed or kind of rumpled against this solid block of British Columbia. Um, And the high lava plains, the faulting that's occurring in the high lava plains is probably very closely related to that rotation of Oregon.
0: If Washington is getting squished, does that mean there's going to be a mountain range created?
1: Yeah, so there are small mountain ranges already in existence. And these are, you can see them in Southern Washington in the Yakima region. There are the, There's this area called the Yakima Fold Belt, and, and that's a region as you're driving north on Highway 97 through southern Washington, you kind of cross up in the Yakima region and the Ellensburg region, you cross these big kind of rolling hills. And they're not mountains, yet, but that is a, a product of this kind of uh, squishing of Washington and sort of folding the landscape into these rolling hills or mountains. Another place where you see the result of this is in the Seattle area. There are a lot of faults that run through Seattle. Seattle has had fairly sizable earthquakes in the past because of these faults and those faults are a result of that um, squishing and, and one layer of rock kind of being shoved up on top of another layer of rock.
0: So you want to buy property in Oregon but not in Washington.
1: Yeah, I guess it depends on what kind of property you want. If you want your property to sort of be rotating and spreading apart (laughs) and possibly get a volcano. um, Or if you want some earthquakes and some small mountain ranges build build up.
0: (laughs) Geology is fascinating. I, I tell kids that, you know, if you want to be a geologist, you've got to be a detective.
1: Mm-hmm. It really is true. And you have to look for these clues in the geochemistry of the rock or how the faults have, have occurred throughout history. Um, instead of, again, instead of building an experiment to, to on a planet size to show you what happened in the geologic past, you really need to do some very detailed detective work in chemistry and, and in physics. <laughs>
0: All that heavy stuff. Do you have uh, suggestions for... Young people that are considering becoming geologists, what do you recommend to them?
1: If you're here in Central Oregon and and you want to go on and study geology and you want to stay in Oregon, most of the of the universities here in Oregon University of Oregon, Oregon State University, Portland State University, they all have really good geology programs. So we live in a great place to study geology, and of course you can go on. There are a lot of other you know schools that have great geology programs. And then if you're looking for what, what to do with a geology degree, there are so many different opportunities. I mean, you can go on and you can teach geology. You can teach at the K through 12 level, all the way up to the university level. You can work for consulting companies that do things like you know, make sure that we're uh, building safe infrastructure for volcanic activity or for earthquakes. Make sure that we're cleaning up uh, mining operations or oil or gas extraction operations. Those extractive industries do come with some environmental problems. And, and so a large part of geology and, and consulting is making sure that we have solutions to those problems and that we can extract the resources we need and not cause uh, environmental problems along the way. You can work for government agencies that, that do all sorts of geologic monitoring from studying volcanoes and making sure that people are know when an eruption is going to occur to doing uh, exploration before roads and bridges are built to make sure that they're on stable ground and and won't go anywhere. Um, We've had a little bit of that happen in central Oregon recently with some road construction projects. So there are a lot of opportunities in geology, both for for government jobs in the private sector and in the um, academic or teaching sector.
0: I hope you enjoyed this podcast on KPOV, your high desert community radio station. Go to kpov.org for more information and our program schedule. We value your feedback, so please send any comments or suggestions to podcast at kpov.org.